Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Hello and welcome to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in the advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. If you are one of the people that work to build grassroots advocacy and grow your community of advocates, then you are in the right place. Now, let's get started. In today's episode, we speak with Rodriguez Bernard Bristol. He is a federal lobbyist, legislative and political affairs manager for the American Neurological Association. Now, before this position, he worked for two patient voluntary health associations where he advanced the patient voice for the FDA, the CDC, NHI, like NIH, and others. He is also an adjunct professor of legislative politics at the George Washington University Graduate School of Political Management. He is an opinion contributor for, in the political news site, The Hill. Rodriguez, thank you and welcome to today's show. Thank you, Roger, for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, I'm ready to dive right in. And, and before we go, can I call you QB? You're certainly welcome to, my friend. I thank you. I thank you very, very much. So let's, as we jump into this, how does the American Urological Association use your membership to help drive your advocacy successes? Well, you know, Roger, there is a, a, true, a truism in, uh, on the Hill, right? And, and that truism is <clears throat> members of Congress need to hear from their constituency. And so when we think about our membership and roughly the, the nearly 12,000 urologists that the American Urological Association represents across the country, we engage our members both at the state um, as well as the federal level to engage their members of Congress. These are physicians, right? Urologists, specialty physicians that we're, we're talking about here. And so we give them uh, the tools, uh, the resources, um, the text, even the templates that they need to effectively communicate to members of Congress about urologic issues affecting them personally, professionally, their practices, um, as well as the environment to which they are. So depending on where our urologist is located, uh, if it's a suburban or a rural area or an urban area, their needs are different. So we supply our membership with the tools they need to effectively communicate to their lawmakers and policymakers 
not only about themselves, again, personally and professionally, but also the patients that they serve. Um, so, you know, when we think about urologic conditions in, in urology, uh, urology deals with the, the male and female reproductive system, all right? So anything from incontinence to erectile dysfunction, which is a silent male disease, roughly 1.5 million men, you know, silently suffer from that, uh, as well as bladder cancer, prostate cancer, uh, you know, so, and, and of course, we know that patients are, are developing these chronic conditions. And so when a urologist or when a physician speaks, they're not only speaking for themselves, but they're also speaking for the patients that they serve. Excellent. And so when you talk about speaking, it, first thing that comes to mind for me is storytelling. You know, it's, right. it's an important component to creatively get your views heard. Do you ever find it difficult to get your issue points across in a manner that is easy for members of Congress and their staff to understand? You know, one of the things that this, this new virtual space has allowed, not just for our membership, but I, I, I would suspect for others, is the ability to communicate um, effectively without the intimidation of actually going to Capitol Hill. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you know that given the marvel, the the uh, huge facility, and then, of course, you're, you're talking to either the member of Congress themselves or to a 22 year old staffer, which I was at one point in my life. Uh, and so it can be intimidating coming to Washington in this new virtual space as our members are engaging policymakers, either via teleconference or webcam. One of the things that we, we emphasize, certainly pre-COVID and now more than ever, is the ability to tell your story, right? Tell your story both as a person, as an individual, and also to tell the story of the patients that you serve. And so we really just start with the, the basics, right? What inspired you to get involved in medicine? Generally, more specifically, what inspired you to get involved in urology, right? What are some of the successes that you have? What are some of the challenges that you have? And, and more importantly, how can that, all of your, your narrative, be placed into a legislative solution to actually fix the problem? And the power of storytelling, I, I can't tell you, has been tremendously helpful to us um, and, and for, again, the, the patients, because that storytelling of telling why I am a, a, a VA urologist, for example, and the problems that vets who have urologic conditions have, quite frankly, has, has led into a bill uh, that I'm actively working to get reintroduced in this 117th Congress. So the power of storytelling can actually translate into meaningful legislation. Yeah. Without question. And I thought it was interesting that you talked about the intimidation factor. You know, we've all been through it. Uh, <laughs> whether you, when you walked on first as a, as a young staffer, uh, the intimidation factor or watching the people that we work with on the Hill when they do go and get that chance to physically be on the Hill, uh, a little bit of that intimidation. And it's it's interesting that 
those are the fears that people, one of the fears that people have just participating. And, and they don't necessarily want to come out and say that, but right. I think that that's one of those hidden hidden actions that uh, that keep them from participating. And, and I think you're right, virtually has made a huge, huge difference. Right. It, it's, it's less intimidating now, right? Because we, we all are, uh, for the most part, looking at each other through a lens, a camera lens. And so when you're able, I mean, again, one of the, the, the things that this, one of the good things I would add that this pandemic has opened up is for new people to, to talk to their lawmakers in a setting that's perhaps less intimidating. And once you continue to engage those new members uh, who historically probably did not participate in this new virtual space that they have participate, you know, I suspect they would be more willing to come out to Washington. Yeah. So have you seen an increase then of more people? Oh, absolutely. We have, we have seen an increase of uh, new urologists. And when I say new urologists, I'm talking about those who recently graduated medical school and started their residencies. Uh, we've seen an increase in, in fellows. And one of the things that we're trying to do as well is reach out to our, our research community, research and academic urologists as well, who I, I'm not going to be so uh, presumptuous as to say don't understand the hill, uh, but they connecting the dots of how research and, and advocacy is important. So yes, we, we have seen an increase in terms of more people being active and at the heart of the pandemic, of course, uh, when, when practices unfortunately closed, uh, when, because we are specialty uh, physicians, you know, we were not really essential uh, at the heart of the pandemic because it was primary care physicians. And so there was a lot of interest uh, in terms of what does PPPE mean? Uh, how can I have access to it? And, and that was a lot of our work. So yes, I think we have seen an interest given the health crisis that we faced. It always comes back to how does it affect me? Right. And in, in your case, uh, with it being listed as a specialty, it affects them. They won't be able to work as much. Right. And, 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 and do as much, A, for their patients and for their practice. Absolutely. Um, and so, so you've got great tips and tools on the website uh, for advocates. But what do you do? You mentioned the younger, just out of uh, school uh, doctors. What do you do to really educate, engage, and kind of grow them into being advocates? Well, that's... Good question. So two things that the AUA specifically has done to sort of build the pipeline of advocacy, if you will. Uh, and I can't take any credit for this, but I have to give credit to my colleague. Uh, he, there, we have a young residents and fellows committee, which is really just young urologists or recently graduated medical students and fellows. And so that committee is a pipeline really in terms of <clears throat> really getting interested in not just in terms of AUA leadership, but also in terms of advocacy, right? What does that look like? Um, the AUA, we are fortunate to have two members of Congress who are both urologists. And, and so uh, that also, particularly when we, we have um, sort of fundraisers attached to our, our PAC, our political action committee, that's always a, a fun way to get younger urologists involved. Well, another thing that we also do is that 
we have a, a fellowship program to where it gets, again, younger physicians, uh, urolo- younger fellows involved into this, this fellowship. It's about a, I think it's a four month fellowship where you live in Washington, D.C. and work for a member of Congress and you are their resident fellow. Uh, that was started by one of our physicians. He started that, that fellowship some time ago. So that's one way in which we bring in new advocates. Another way we bring in advocates is that we are intentional. And so we ensure that we have a young urologist, fellows, residents, the voice, right? Uh, their voices either on, not necessarily our board of directors, but also on every committee within the AUA. Again, I, I highlighted the residents and fellows committee, but also our AUA PAC board has a, a resident and a, a fellow voice there as well. So we try to incorporate uh, the younger voices as much as possible. The average age of a urologist in this country is about 56, 55 years old. So we are an aging subspecialty of medicine. So we're going to need younger urologists and residents and fellows. And and, and we, I think, are doing a wonderful job of, of building that pipeline. I think that's excellent. I think all too often, uh, and, I, and I see this in a number of organizations, where they kind of take care of their grass tops, but their grass tops start to become gray tops. Mm-hmm. And their gray tops, as they are aging out, are <laughs> like coming that. in behind them. Right. And so I think that that's an important factor to be able to get young involved. Right. And, and it, you know, and when I say young, I mean, you know, the younger, ready to go, right. fresh out of school. Uh, well, you made me think about something. What I want to just simply ask you, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the word advocacy? Hmm. The first thing that comes to mind when I think of the word advocacy is being in the room. Uh, as you, as you be in the room where it happens. Right, in the room where it happens, that, that, that famous musical, right? Uh, so much of what we do is, is about being in the room, right? And, and the, as, a, as an adage that if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. So for me, when I think of advocacy, I, I think of being in the room because, and I tell people this outside of the beltway, who, who really don't understand what advocacy is, who don't understand the L word lobbying, which I don't think is a bad word, uh, who, who don't understand that government relations. You know, everybody in this country is represented in some shape, form, or fashion, right? Whether you are a small business owner, whether you have AAA, <laughs> or whether you enjoy fishing, uh, you are represented in some entity, some organization, some person is representing your voice on Capitol Hill and at the state level. So when you think about advocacy, you have to have those voices at the table. And the question is, is your voice you know, at the table? And there's, there, are certain, there are certainly tools and mechanisms to ensure that one's voice is louder. But when I think of advocacy, I think of being in the room uh, because that's, that's most important. And I, I've seen those, I've seen, what happens when certain voices and certain constituencies are not in the room. 
that's that's the menu. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I I find it fascinating, and I often do this. If and when I, when I'm speaking, I talk about the fact that if you walked down the street and you put a microphone in the average individual in any town USA, and you said, "What do you think of advocacy?" I'm not sure that we would get a positive response from them. Right. Because I don't think that they understand that to be an advocate is to be positive about something. Right. It's it's about speak out in favor of, mm-hmm. and uh, and they don't understand. And whether it's comparing it with advocacy and lobbying and and all that, I, they don't understand. And I think you're absolutely right when you said when you get outside the Beltway and people don't understand. Right. I, I think that's important. So that's and, a great great point. You're right. Making. And, and one thing that I always try to do, uh, particularly when I, again, when I go home, I'm originally from Atlanta. So when I go home or if I, I go about two hours outside of the, the, the immediate D.C. area and, and people ask what I do, you know, I say, well, I'm a lobbyist. Uh, I'm a lobbyist for, you know, a professional medical association. Uh, I represent patients and physicians. And, and because the first thing to your point that they think of, oh, the gun industry or the tobacco industry, right? They, they automatically go to perhaps issues that could be contentious or, or not in favorable lights. And I, and I, and I use those moments as, as a teaching moment, right? Which you know, which you noted that I teach for, uh, also teach for a living. <laughs> but I use those as teaching moments to educate people about the power of advocacy and that you too can contact your, your member of Congress or your, your state lawmaker. And that at some point, if you ever want to take a vacation to Washington, D.C., hey, take a vacation off Capitol Hill, contact your congressional office, take a tour of the Capitol. It is beautiful. Uh, but that, that, that's, that's what advocacy is. And everybody, you don't just have to be a high-powered lobbyist. Anyone can be an advocate. Anyone can take part in uh, the field of advocacy. You know that you're right. It's not. It's not about being just a high-powered uh, lobbyist. And in fact, sometimes some of the strongest voices are the smallest people mm-hmm. that have a great story to tell. And I don't mean small in stature. I mean, I mean, small in a comparative. You know, the average everyday constituent, the average right. citizen that has X, Y, or Z that affects them. And when they walk in and say, this, this is personal, this affects right. me, uh, that perks the ears up and people listen. Right. So with that, you mentioned one of the priorities that you're trying to get a bill across the, uh, across the line in the 117th Congress. What are two or three of your other kind of more general priorities that the, the uh, AUS sure. has? Yeah, so uh, one of our one of our priorities uh, certainly is uh, with regard to uh, wounded warriors and, and veterans, uh, infertility issues, and I have for the last hmm, year, I think now, yes, COVID brain year, uh, worked on the the veterans. <laughs> Veterans Prostate Cancer Treatment and Research Act, which was introduced and passed last Congress 
and actually end up passing the House, but of course die with this new Congress because there was not a companion in the Senate and trying to get that reintroduced. So veterans and urologic veterans care in the veteran, excuse me, urologic care in the veteran space, I should say, is, is one of our priorities. Uh, but but two really equal important priorities, and we have a, a officially have about 10 of them. Uh, telehealth is, is another priority, right? Uh, what we have seen, and, and this is across physicians across the board, is that um, telehealth is really important uh, for a lot of patients um, who, again, did not have COVID-19 and who still yet needed access to their specialty physicians. And what we would like from a regulatory perspective, particularly is for some of those same telehealth provisions to remain. So we actively work with members of Congress to ensure that telehealth, both generally speaking, but also even in spaces like uh, veterans, for example, uh, is here to stay. Another really keen priority uh, is, is research. Uh, fundamentally, uh, when you think of uh, bladder health and, and bladder related conditions, uh, as well as the congressional directed medical research programs, um, which funds a, a lot of innovative programs out of uh, the Department of Defense. Uh, you know, those, that's one of the top priorities for us as well. Uh, and, and of course, NIH, we work with one of the institutes within NIH, NIDDK, which again deals with uh, kidney and bladder diseases as well. So, uh, you know, those are the other two priorities uh, amongst others that we have when it comes to early detection of screening. Uh, so prostate cancer, uh, again, being, being an issue, uh, workforce shortage. Uh, I did mention that the average age of a urologist is about 55, 56 years old. Well, there's a shortage of physicians across the board. And, and, there, and then when you look at more um, specialty physicians, there's also a shortage, right? I don't want to speak for the, the rheumatologist, but rheumatology is, an, is another aging subspecialty of medicine. So workforce issues. Um, and then lastly, I'll end by with regard to workforce issues, you know, 62% of counties in this country don't have access to urologists. And so when you think about more rural counties, uh, they have to either drive across state lines or, you know, miles to find a urologist because we still know that those patients in those rural counties are still developing urologic conditions. Uh, so it, it, those are just priorities that we need to think about, um, not just as an association, but also as a country. And so when I'm speaking to members or their staff, uh, those are some of the issues that, that we highlight because it, it really affects the, the overall health of, of our country. So, so you've, been, you've been hitting on that point a little bit. The president uh, recently addressed the joint session of Congress and he had a list of legislative proposals. Mm -hmm. Have you had time to figure out the impact of those proposals that will have on the American Urological Association and your members? We haven't as of yet. I'm, I'm sure that when we meet at, both as a staff and also with our members that we will look at what the president has outlined. Uh, again, I believe it was this week. <laughs> so we will look at what the president has outlined and what Congress, if anything, tends to do about it. Uh, the president's agenda, depending on where you stand politically, was, was rather ambitious. Uh, some of that may get across Congress. If I was a betting man, most of it probably won't. But that being said, 
health care, we're still in the middle of a public health crisis. Uh, we know that health care is still important. We know that people are still developing cancer. And so those issues, unfortunately, will not go away. I think the trick for us and in any medical association is where and how do our values align with um, the mission of, of the individual member, right? Uh, how does our position align with the mission and the value of that individual member of Congress? Uh, we know that values are always a, a little more difficult to, to coalesce around, but once you define the position and if the position based off of your membership and, and ours particularly is more aligned with certain members of Congress, then that's an, an avenue and channel to which we, of course, will then continue to, to push and to advocate. So I can't remember, but during that address to Congress, uh, the president referred to a name and a, a group within the Defense Department that has done all this great innovation over the years uh, that's led to a lot of changes. And he actually kind of proposed that there should be one on the health side as mm -hmm. well. Do you think that that's a good idea? I think it's a great idea. I, I mentioned the Congressional Directed Medical Research Programs, right? So that's a really innovative, ambitious research program, again, under the Department of Defense, slightly different from the CDC, uh, the NIH, which, which typically, and, and that's not to take away, of course, from those institutes, but it typically takes sort of time for, for the research to come out of, of um, NIH, for example. But with the Congressional Directed Medical Research Programs, the CDMRPs, I mean, there have been some really innovative research that has, that has helped patients. Uh, so when, you, when we begin to think of more ambitious sort of health initiatives, uh, well, absolutely. I don't think the country needs to put all of its eggs, for lack of a better term, into to sort of one basket. But I think we need multiple, I think multiple agencies should be looking at uh, public health, right? Uh, if, if nothing else, and I am not, I'm not an expert on national security at all, but when you think about the health of a, a citizenry of a country, uh, it could very well be a public health issue. And a national security issue. All right, all right, very well, yes, that's exactly what I meant, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. So let's uh, let's kind of spin this uh, in a different direction now. I wanted I wanted to go down the road of you as an adjunct professor at uh, George Washington University in the in the Graduate School of uh, of Political Management. So, what do you think? What and what do you see? Because of it being a graduate program, are the greatest strengths of your students? Oh, the greatest strengths of my students. I, you know, I've never been asked that before. I think the greatest strengths of, of, of the students that I have had the pleasure of working with is that they are ambitious, right? And that they want to do something, right? Uh, they want to do something about whatever the problems that they define as problems uh, in, in our country. And often we, when we hear the term ambition, we, we often think of it in a pejorative way. Uh, certainly I don't, and I don't, and, and if you're going to come to Washington, 
um, not. <laughs> think of ambition in, in, a, in a pejorative way, but our students really are ambitious and because and they are, are they are ambitious because they want to solve or fix the problem, whatever again they define as the problem. And so I think every and I've been teaching now uh, for going on six years. And every cohort that comes in, I find that to be the case where they actively want to, to work to, quite frankly, make democracy better. And, and this is one of the things that even as I go out and promote uh, the Graduate School of Political Management at, at GW, is that that's one thing they, they want to do. They, they fundamentally want to make democracy better. Um, now, I teach within the Graduate School of Political Management, but the George Washington University as a whole uh, is, is, quite frankly, known for um, their students who are, are interested in uh, the State Department or in political science, generally speaking. I mean, that has been a strength, a hallmark of the George Washington University. And I've had the pleasure of not just teaching graduate students, but also teaching undergrads. And I, and I find that to be uh, the case as well. Well, I, I, in the work that I do with a lot of different organizations, I work with their youth and their young leaders or mm -hmm. young leaders programs. And I find the exact same things, QB. I find that group of people <clears throat> very energetic to want to go out and be problem solvers. Right. They, they see problems and they want to attack them and work with them. And they haven't kind of been uh, chiseled down by the running waters over their back of all the years that, that kind of wear them down and, uh, and, and jade them. And I commend them for that. But I also think in general terms, those generations uh, are kind of the same that were 50 years ago. I mean, I think there's a mm -hmm. cycle of this. Right. And, and I think we see a more activist youth right. uh, today than we, than we have for, for, right. for many years. So conversely, what are some additional tools do you think these students need for success in the workplace? <laughs> uh, that is a, is a very typical uh, professorial question. Uh, one of the things that I always try to ensure that my students leave and, and walk away with is, is two things. The ability to communicate verbally and the ability to communicate um, written. Uh, when Because a lot of I, I don't really care what sector you go into. You're going to have to know how to write well. And, and writing, I'm afraid, is somewhat on a decline uh, because of this new sort of virtual platform and digital world and age in which we live. So things that I grew up with, basic grammar, uh, you know, a gerund, right? Comma splice. <laughs> I am seeing certain students don't know the, the difference, right? And so writing is a critical skill uh, that is needed, certainly for advocacy and government relations. Uh, but I, I think, again, across the board. And so writing is, is one skill. Again, communicating um, verbally in, in, in the written form, uh, but also communicating orally. You have a lot of students, sometimes they are shy. Uh, they're very timid about speaking in public. Uh, they they are sort of, you know, again, there's some apprehension about 
expressing their opinions because of fear of, of backlash or one wouldn't, is not going to understand them or they're not going to say the right things. And so being able to express your, your viewpoints and articulate your viewpoints, even if there is some angst that you might have about expressing that. Those are two things that I, I emphasize that I think will help any student, quite frankly, that choose to goes and go into any sort of career, but particularly a career in, in you know, politics or public affairs. Uh, certainly the, the, the ability, excuse me, to communicate uh, both orally as well as written. So you brought up something of, you know, kind of afraid to voice their opinion. Uh, back when I was in a political science class and we looked out the window and dinosaurs were still roaming the earth. Uh, <laughs> I remember the political, uh, the political science instructor saying, you must learn how to agree to disagree, but without being disagreeable. Without being disagreeable, right. And adding that second component about not being disagreeable is one of the arts that I think that our country has suffered through, uh, and, and particularly recently, that we're all afraid uh, of the outcome of whatever we, we speak forward with. And, and that is something that I think is damaging. No, you, you're absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, certainly one of the, the things that we, again, we, we tout, we market to incoming students and to prospective students is that the Graduate School of Political Management is a place where Democrats and, and Republicans can, can come together effectively, learn, debate, disagree, and still be civil. I have certainly found that to be the case in all of my classes. Um, most recently, this, in fact, this past semester, I turned in grades two weeks ago. I, I taught, um, essentially, the course was politics and race. Uh, and as you can imagine, given what our country uh, experienced in 2020 and, and still, unfortunately, is experiencing around this conversation of race, um, there were vast viewpoints on it. Uh, students coming from more conservative backgrounds to students coming from more liberal uh, backgrounds. But it was absolutely, and, and great, this was, granted, this was through virtual space, uh, but it was absolutely, and I wish members of Congress could have seen the conversations that we were having uh, to take at how civil, right, and, and how, dis how they disagreed, but they were still, they were still agreeable, right, they were still humane about it. And, and that is uh, one of the hallmarks and one of the, quite frankly, the joys that, uh, of teaching and teaching over these many years. Uh, because I have, um, I tend to teach very sensitive topics <laughs> that you're, you're not supposed to discuss publicly. Uh, and the ability that I've seen my students walk away with, and these, and some of my students are actually working professionals, and so they are working actively on these issues. And when they go back to their offices, whether it's congressional offices or whether they're working for agencies, and they're they're able to have these very nuanced and very complicated and complex questions. Well, it's not just it's a direct you know, contribution of the education that they're, they're receiving. And so it, it is really quite marvelous uh, when, when we have those contentious conversations and yet there is no cursing, there is no yelling, there is no one calling each other out of their name. 
yeah, it, it, vitally important to be able to have those conversations. All right. So the, the time flies when we get on these podcasts and, and have these conversations. So I want to give you an opportunity for any final thoughts, anything you would like to add, QB? No. Um, you know, I think in this, this new age, um, in terms of advocacy generally, I, you know, focusing on, I think, existing relationships is going to always be another truism that's needed. Um, I think building coalitions now more than ever uh, is, is going to be needed. And, and certainly empowering and providing your, your membership or building new advocates with tools and, and the language and the templates that they need to be effective for their voices to be heard uh, throughout the country, again, at the state or the federal level is, is you know, three, I think, issues that's important for, for the power of advocacy. And something that we should never forget, we always need to kind of circle back to those, those basic premises of, of doing those exact things. How can people reach uh, the American Neurological Association for more information? Sure, well, you can go to our website, uh, which is, you know, just type in AUA uh, in, in any sort of search engine is, is uh, one way. Uh, we are, we're also on all social media platforms, Twitter perhaps, I suppose, being the most common, which is at America Urological, which is A-M-E-R Urological. That's, that's our, our Twitter handle as well. Excellent. Well, I can't thank you enough. I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate your time today, your knowledge, and particularly your work in keeping the young people on track, uh, moving, moving forward and, and helping our country solve problems. So that's a wrap up of today's great conversation with Kondrikas Driscoll, QB, at the American Urological Association. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Roger. And now it's time for the advocacy engagement. We always talk about having our advocates communicate with their elected officials. And to be effective in doing this, one has to learn a few guiding principles. Today's principle is to train your advocates on preparation. Teach them how to do their homework. Show advocates how they can learn about the issue or problem they want to communicate. Teach them how to explain it. Knowing opposing arguments, anticipate questions, and have responses ready. And don't forget to support their position with facts. Do you have a program to train and onboard your new advocates or reinforce advocacy best practices and principles to your existing grassroots advocates? to have RAP Index as a sponsor to the show. Let's face it, today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. 
go to rapindex.com. That's R-A-P-Index.com and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. quick notes to end this episode. In upcoming episodes, you will be treated to great interviews from leaders in the world of politics, associations, and nonprofit causes. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts and subscribe to the Voices and Advocacy podcast today. A big thank you to today's distinguished guest. We at Voices and Advocacy work with organizations to inspire educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. That's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective, influential advocate. Now go out and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.